And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Attention, people of Earth. Do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth Destruction Directive. Hello everyone and welcome to Earth Destruction Directive. I am your host as always, Mr. Luke Giaconetti. I would like to thank everyone for downloading and listening to the show today. Hope everyone enjoyed our last episode where we took an in-depth look at Stomped Issue 3, the indie Daikaiju comic from creator Ross Radke. Very cool comic book. Uh, today we're going to change tact a little bit. We are going to be taking a look at a film that is celebrating, believe it or not, its 25th anniversary right now, this very month. And that is Godzilla 1998, the big-budget tri-star American Godzilla film, which came out two and a half decades ago. Where does the time go? <sighs> I don't even want to consider the fact that this movie came out 25 years ago, but we're going to on this episode. Before we get to Godzilla 98, though, we do have some news, so let's get right into it. In Ultra News, Ultraman Series 3, the anime is live right now on Netflix. This is the third season of the, uh, of the, uh, ba the anime based on the manga. Uh, the official description from Netflix reads, As public sentiment turns against Ultraman, Shinjiro learns that his inherited powers may come with a heavy price. In this exciting series conclusion, conclusion is the right word as Subaraya and Netflix have both been advertising this as the final season of the show. Uh, I know that a lot of folks seem to dislike the second season. Uh, I enjoyed it, personally. I'm, I'm eager to watch this season as well. Now, of course, this also makes me, personally, feel somewhat guilty, because I am several volumes behind on the manga. Uh, they are kind of piling up, up in my bonus room, but that is another story. In more Ultra News, Ultraman Regulos is coming to the Subaraya YouTube channel on May 23rd. Now, after the finale of Ultra Galaxy Fight the Destined Crossroad, which also aired on YouTube, I am not really surprised to see Regulos popping up here as well. It seems that they roll them onto the uh, Subaraya Imagination streaming service and then, after a while, bring them over to YouTube for uh, those of us who don't either have access to uh, Imagination or are otherwise too cheap. Uh, my kids and I enjoyed the Ultra Galaxy fight shows. No doubt that we'll get a kick out of the Master of the Cosmo Beast style as well. See, kick. Get it? See, see what I did there? Kick. Anyway. And in even more Ultra news, Subaraya has also announced a new short film entitled Ultra 7 If Story, The Future 55 Years Ago, coming this fall as part of the year-long Ultra 7 55th Anniversary Project. The short is described officially as a short film which connects the present and the future through an if story, an episode which may have existed as part of the series at the time of its original run in 1967. 
running seven minutes, Ultra 7 If Story, the future 55 years ago, will question the central message of the show in the present age and convey the charm of Ultra 7's universal themes not only to fans, but also to people today. Sounds like a fun celebration for the beloved Ultra Hero. More information on this as it develops. Uh, no word on a Western release or anything like that, so just a little teaser of the of the short, so hopefully we'll get some more information on that. In Gamera News, the third of five enemies has been revealed for the upcoming anime Gamera Rebirth. Zegra, the baritone space shark himself, has been officially given the nod to return for the first time since his appearance way back in Super Monster Gamera. Uh, his silhouette looks to be a mixture of his classic swimming look with the swooping fins of a stingray. Very interesting uh, uh, silhouette we have. My oldest daughter, who loves sharks, will no doubt be pleased with the return of her favorite Gamera Kaiju. Now, rumors are that Gamera Rebirth will debut worldwide on Netflix uh, in September. So we still have some time to see if they reveal the other two enemies. My long shot guess is still Garasharp. Come on, Garasharp! In comic news, IDW has solicited Godzilla, Monsters and Protectors, Summer Smash one-shot. The final installment of the Monsters and Protectors series. This one-shot is oversized and is touted as part of the, quote, perfect Godzilla adventure for middle graders. I liked the first series, and I have the second one, although I've not read it yet. I've got all the issues sitting on my stack. I can definitely see the middle school demographic, though, given that I have several such students in my house. And yeah, I, I think IDW is pretty on the money at this being aimed at that market. Uh, Summer Smash is due on July 26th and is in this month's previews catalog if you'd like to order it. In high-end book news, Godzilla History of Formative Arts 1954-2016 by Osamu Kishikawa is due out here in the States in June. This book offers a, quote, massive collection of rare, never-before-seen still photos from the movies and behind-the-scenes studio snapshots in chronological order excluding the Hollywood series. Bilingual expl explanatory text is included in each chapter to guide readers in understanding the history of Godzilla episode by episode. This is an, this is a tome, is what it looks like. Uh, it is this imposing volume. It retails for $99, as the uh, notes implied, it is bilingual. It looks fantastic, but uh, may be a little out of my price range, but this is a big oversized book. Really does look cool. Uh, so definitely check that one out. And finally, in scheduling news, the Godzilla Classic 16-month 2024 wall calendar has been solicited in previews this month. Now, no information about the art inside, but from the cover, it looks like it will feature the posters of the Showa-era films, which will make for a nice wall hanging, if nothing else. Calendar is due in shops this August. I am definitely interested in this. So now I throw it to you, the listener. Do you have any news or information on anything uh, Daikaiju related that we could talk about here on the show? Please go ahead and send it to me, Directive at yahoo.com, and I'll definitely give you a shout-out here on the show. All right, we are going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to get into the 25th anniversary of Godzilla 98 right here on Earth Destruction Directive. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, this is Jason Giaconetti. You may recognize my voice from the Vault of Starling Monster Horror Tales of Terror, and if you don't, you should be listening. But today I need to ask you a few questions. Do you like big bugs and you cannot lie? 
Other robots just can't deny that when the Queen of Space walks in and puts a blast in your face that your gears get sprung? Are you deep in the bee we're sharing? Are you hooked and you can't stop staring? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then have I got a podcast for you. Bots, Bugs, and Babes, the B-Movie Podcast. From classics to cults and all the yummy, yummy cheese in between. Look for my new show, Bots, Bugs, and Babes, on the Two True Freaks Network and on iTunes. That's Bots, Bugs, and Babes, the B-Movie Podcast. Double J on the Triple B is your hookup. Holler if you hear me. All right, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Godzilla, commonly called Godzilla 98, to differentiate it from other films with that same title, was released to American theaters by TriStar on May 20th, 1998, and to Japanese theaters by Toho on July 11th, 1998. Uh, Our writers, our screenplay is by Dean Devlin and Roland Emmerich, both of whom I will talk about a lot more in a moment. Instead, I want to talk about the story credit, which goes to Ted Elliott and Terry Rossio, who wrote the original version of this film, which was tied to director Jan DeBont. Now, they received story credit despite their screenplay being completely replaced as part of the nature of projects in Hollywood. Now, amusingly, Terry Rossio was the head of the writer's room for Godzilla vs. Kong and received a story credit for that film and is returning to that role for Godzilla X-Kong, The New Empire. So, it's interesting, Rossio still kind of involved in, in the Godzilla uh, uh, franchise, even if his story, uh, part of his, did not get used for this one. Uh, our special effects, now, like one would expect from a big-budget American film from 1998, there were many hands involved in the creation of the effects for this film. Volker Engel was the film's visual effects supervisor, and he was a frequent collaborator with Devlin and Emmerich, both before and after this film. One of the other key figures to mention is Patrick Tatopoulos, a production designer who had worked with Devlin and Emmerich previously, and he was the one who created the design for the new American Godzilla. Tatopoulos has also worked with some very big directors besides uh, Emmerich, including Alex Proyas, David Toohey, Len Wiseman, and Zack Snyder. So this guy definitely uh, makes his rounds in Hollywood. Now, our director is Roland Emmerich. mentioned his name a couple of times here. Uh, born in Germany, Emmerich's a well-known director of big-budget Hollywood spectacles. His first mainstream movie here in the States was Universal Soldier with Dolph Lundgren and Jean-Claude Van Damme, but he rose to prominence leading up to this film with Stargate and Independence Day. Now, after Godzilla, he would go on to make films such as The Patriot, The Day After Tomorrow, White House Down, and as recently as last year, the movie Moonfall. Now, Emmerich also directed the film Joey, which some of you may know better as Making Contact, which was riffed in 2022's MST3K Live Time Bubble Tour. Our producer is Dean Devlin, and uh, it would not be a Devlin-Emmerich picture without producer Dean Devlin, who transitioned from acting into screenwriting and eventually producing. Uh, He hooked up with Emmerich during the film Moon 44, after which the two became professional partners. Devlin produced and co-wrote the duo's most financially successful films, as mentioned above, and he was also the producer for the Librarian franchise and the beloved series Leverage. I know several uh, folks that I'm connected with through podcasting are big fans of that show. I was a big fan, as well as my wife was uh, also. 
Now, essentially, at this point in 1998, you knew what you were getting if you bought a ticket to a Devlin Emmerich movie, and that, dear listeners, is exactly what Sony TriStar wanted with this film. So, we're going to get into our synopsis. This is adapted from Wikipedia and goes a little something like this. An iguana nest is exposed to the fallout of a military nuclear test in French Polynesia. In the South Pacific Ocean, a Japanese cannery vessel is suddenly attacked by a giant creature with only one fisherman surviving. Dr. Nico Nick Tatopoulos, an NRC scientist, is in the Chernobyl exclusion zone researching excuse me, the effects of radiation on earthworms, but is interrupted by an official from the U.S. Department of State. In Tahiti, a mysterious Frenchman questions the traumatized survivor over what he witnessed, who repeatedly replies, Gojira. Nick is sent to Panama, where he meets up with Colonel Hicks from the U.S. Army and examines a massive footprint. Nick meets the rest of the team Hicks has assembled, including paleontologist Dr. Elsie Chapman and her assistant, Dr. Mendel Craven. The team then travel to Jamaica to study a trail of wreckage leading to the recovered Japanese ship with massive claw marks on it. The Frenchman is also there, introducing himself as Philippe Roche, claiming to be an insurance adjuster. Nick identifies skin samples he discovered in the shipwreck as belonging to an unknown reptilian species. He dismisses Chapman's theory of the creature being a living dinosaur, instead deducing it is a mutant created by nuclear testing. The creature continues north, sinking three fishing trawlers off the east coast of the United States, and finally arrives at Manhattan Island in New York City. Its arrival is witnessed by many New Yorkers, including Audrey Timmons, a young professional assistant slash aspiring news reporter, who also happens to be Nick's ex, and her friend, news cameraman Victor Animal Pilati. Animal manages to capture brief footage of the creature, nearly getting stepped on in the process, before it disappears, and the city is evacuated against the wishes of Mayor Ebert. The U.S. military, commanded by Hicks, cannot locate the creature, which is using the numerous tunnels underneath the city to move about. On Nick's advice, the military lures the creature into revealing itself with a large pile of fish in the Flatiron District. The military's attempt to kill it fails, however, as the creature easily evades the ground-based weapons and Apache helicopters, which cause more damage to the city before the creature escapes. Nick collects a blood sample by performing a pregnancy test, discovers that the creature reproduces asexually, concludes that it is collecting food for its offspring. Nick also meets up with Audrey, who had spotted him on a news broadcast. While she visits him, she uncovers a classified tape of the surviving Japanese fisherman and uses it to put together a report, hoping to use that report to launch her career. Her plans go awry when her boss, anchorman Charles Kamen, uses a tape in his report, declaring it his own discovery, and dubs the creature Godzilla. As a result, Nick is removed from the operation and has a falling out with Audrey but then is kidnapped by Roach. Revealing himself as an agent of the French Secret Service, Philippe explains that he and his colleagues have been closely watching the events to cover up their country's role in the nuclear testing that created Godzilla. Suspecting a nest somewhere in the city, they cooperate with Nick to trace and destroy it. Meanwhile, Godzilla is lured out once more with another pile of fish, but sees the trap coming and avoids it. Godzilla dives into the Hudson River, where he is attacked by a trio of Navy submarines. Godzilla manages to sink one sub with its own torpedoes, but then is struck by two other torpedoes and declared dead by the military. Nick and Philippe's team, followed by Audrey and Animal, enter the subway tunnels 
and find the nest inside Madison Square Garden with over 200 eggs. The eggs begin to hatch, and the strike team are attacked by the mobile and hungry offspring. Nick, Animal, Audrey, and Philippe take refuge in the garden's broadcast booth and successfully send out a live news report to alert the military. Hicks orders an F-16 scramble, and the jets bomb the arena just moments after the four make their escape. Audrey and Nick reconcile. But then, the adult Godzilla, having survived, emerges from the garden's ruins. Enraged by the death of its brood, it takes its rage out on the four, chasing them across Manhattan. After a taxi chase, they manage to trap Godzilla within the cables of the Brooklyn Bridge, allowing the returning Air Force to shoot it with missile fire. Godzilla dies from his wounds, and the remaining citizens and authorities celebrate. Audrey tells Cayman that she quits working for him after what he's done before leaving with Nick. Philippe, taking a tape Animal was recording and promising to return it after removing certain contents, thanks Nick for his help and also parts ways. In the ruins of Madison Square Garden, though, a single surviving egg hatches, and the hatchling roars. Now, Godzilla 98 is a movie which stirs up strong emotions in a lot of viewers. There's a lot of ground to cover here, so let's jump right into it. Plans for an American Godzilla film stretch back much farther than the late 1990s. As early as 1983, filmmaker Steve Miner was trying to pull together a 3D effort entitled Godzilla, King of the Monsters in 3D, which would have featured a stop-motion animated Godzilla. Of course, there was questions on how stop-motion would work in 3D, but, you know, that's neither here nor there. Before Miner could secure financing to start work on the film, Toho restarted the series with Rebirth of Godzilla in 1984, which, of course, got brought over to the States as Godzilla 1985 by New World. A decade later, after Sony TriStar signed a deal with Toho to develop an American Godzilla film, Rocio and Elliott put together a script for that film, and director Jan DeBont fresh off directing the hit action thriller Speed, another personal favorite, was attached. The project eventually went to turnaround, where it languished until Sony approached Emmerich about taking it on. Emmerich himself having come off the success of Stargate, a box office hit, if not exactly a critical one, and at the time in the middle of the high-profile blockbuster Independence Day. Emmerich and Devlin agreed to the project if they could rewrite the script. Sony agreed and the project was underway. As an aside, Rossio and Elliott's script was turned into an unauthorized OGN called Godzilla 94, which I'm sure you can find if you look for it. Now, Devlin and Emmerich's approach to the project was not to make the same type of film which Toho had done. To this end, they wanted their Godzilla to be more animalistic, and especially to be able to run very quickly. This radical departure was designed by Patrick Tatopoulos and was eventually approved by Toho, as long as several details were kept the same, such as having four fingers on his hands and three toes on his feet, having three rows of spines, not eating people, and not dying. Hmm. For reference, I'm going to call this Godzilla by the name I have used for him since 1998, Amerigoji, for the rest of this episode. While production continued on a fast pace, Sony having committed to a Memorial Day 1998 release, despite the huge amount of work the film would entail, the marketing campaign began as well. The initial teaser trailer was released in 1997 and specifically targeted the huge hit from 93, Universal's Jurassic Park. The trailer depicts a scene not in the film. As students are getting a tour of a museum, which is implied to be, but not actually, the American Museum of Natural History, which is in New York, instead it is the fictional New York Museum of Natural History, they witnessed a skeleton of a T-Rex being crushed by the foot of a Maragogi. The teaser was a big hit, 
and Buzz immediately began building, especially taking a pot shot at a certified blockbuster like Jurassic Park. The marketing continued with a motif based on the tagline, Size Does Matter, with billboards and advertisements hyping Amerigoji's massive dimensions. His foot is as long as this bus, or he is twice the size of this sign, another large-scale advertising. Additionally, Sony signed deals with licensors as various as Edie's Ice Cream, which produced a flavor that was vanilla with monster-shaped chocolate chips and fudge, which seems pretty tame to me for a Godzilla ice cream, and Taco Bell, the latter resulting in the awesome late 90s pop culture mashup of the Taco Bell dog setting a trap for Godzilla and saying, here, lizard, lizard, lizard. As an aside, I still have not one but two of the Taco Bell Amerigoji cup holders. There was no escaping Godzilla marketing moving from the fall of 97 into 1998. It should also be noted that we never, ever saw the entirety of Amerigoji in the marketing, only a glimpse of a foot or a tail as part of the mystery about what his final look would be. Now, of course, there were leaks, and most of us had seen what we thought his look would be beforehand, but it was a pretty bold step. On a personal note, this was before I had the internet at home, but my father had it at work, and he would routinely print out news and updates on the production from Barry's Temple of Godzilla, for those old enough to remember that website. Now, all of this is to say that the hype and expectations around this film were enormous, even bigger than its massive title star. It would have been very difficult for any film to live up to these expectations, but honestly, in 1998, the team of Devlin and Emmerich were the team who was thought to be able to do it. The massive success of the widescreen alien invasion disaster spectacle Independence Day, which had a similar but not quite as robust marketing campaign, was seen as a case of right place, right time. And I, as a 17-year-old kid, was more than eager to see it on the big screen which I did opening weekend with my family at the then Sony Theater, later Lowe's Theater in Danbury, Connecticut, the best theater within driving distance at the time. The results were mixed, let's say. One thing I should mention, the opening credits, utilizing large amounts of stock footage combined with ominous shots of reptiles going about their business, still holds up nicely. This is especially true as this style of credits slightly changed would go on to become the de facto standard for the MonsterVerse after Gareth Edwards used it on Godzilla 2014 some 16 years later. Furthermore, the credits also reach backwards, as one of the pieces of stock footage was used in the U.S. prologue to Rodan and remains a favorite of mine since childhood. Once the film proper begins, I have to admit it starts out strong, moves along at a really rapid clip. The destruction of the Japanese ship... Nick being picked up by the feds, the French team with the survivor, the sinking of the fishing ships, all of that is paced well and gives the film a lot of forward momentum. It's also helped by keeping Amerigoji under wraps, just giving us glimpses, such as when his claws smash through the Japanese ship, and it really plays up his menace. As an aside, when that Japanese ship is attacked, I always get a similar vibe to the Soviet sub being attacked at the beginning of Godzilla 1985. That's just me. The characters don't do as well early on. Nick is a little too whiny to be really likable, but as the fish out of water, he at least makes sense. Hicks is a cookie-cutter military man. Nothing more, nothing less. Chapman openly flirting with Nick seems to come out of nowhere and then really doesn't mean anything. Still, all told, the early stages of the first act are all solid, setting up what looks to be a strong Daikaiju story. 
But then we get to New York, and all I can say is somebody call in the tigers and the acrobats and the clowns because the circus has just rolled into town. If Nick, Hicks, Chapman et al. are not well-developed and relying mostly on stock character traits, the New York-based characters end up approaching self-parody. Broad archetypes. The wannabe reporter girl stuck being an assistant, the street-smart cameraman, his gum-smacking New York wife, the pompous blowhard anchorman. They take the place of characterization entirely at this point. We also meet the buffoonish Mayor Ebert and his milk-toked assistant Gene. Ridiculous caricatures of the critics Siskel and Ebert, who had panned Devlin and Emmerich's previous outings. Now, as a New Yorker by birth, I may be less impressed with these stereotypes than viewers from outside that region or even outside the U.S., Indeed, from what I've read, in some regions, this film was a runaway smash hit beloved by audiences. I can't speak to that. The thing is, you can make a summer popcorn movie with archetypal characters. But these characters, thrown at us en masse, do not engage the viewer and instead turn the audience off. So these scenes, they squander all the goodwill the film had earned in that first half hour or so. The cast is strange for a movie with these ambitions, too. Matthew Broderick is the most well-known of the leads, but casting him as the lead in a big-budget effects movie is an unusual choice. Nick's not a bad character, but the film is never quite sure if he's supposed to be a hero or a nebbish, which I lay more at the script than the acting. Unfortunately, I cannot be as kind to Maria Patillo, who plays Audrey, and looks to be completely out of her depth with a character who's not all that deep to begin with. Her performance, you know, won the Golden Raspberry for Worst Supporting Actress, and it's a well-deserved honor. Beyond that, with one exception that I'll discuss below, we have mostly character and TV actors rounding out the cast, including not one, not two, but three members of The Simpsons in the form of Hank Azaria, who plays Animal, Harry Shearer, who plays Cayman, and yes, he sounds exactly like Kent Brockman, and Nancy Cartwright, who plays Cayman's assistant. I don't know what the motivation is here, perhaps reducing the cost of the cast to shift budget to the effects? I compared this very negatively to Independence Day, which not only has a wonderful cast of actors and actresses, but also matches that cast to roles for which they are well-suited, and the film works much better for it. I do want to take a moment to talk about Gene Reno, who plays Roach. When I was younger, I did not think much about Roach, other than the inherent silliness of essentially making France the bad guys in a Godzilla movie. To this day, I still think the choice of making Amerigoji the result of French nuclear tests is a cop-out, ultimately removing America from all blame for the monster which is attacking their city. That said, the character of Roach is one of the few who I think makes a positive impression. It helps that Reno is far and away the best actor in this film, and he is, if not exactly taking the role super seriously, at least having fun with it and leaning into the broad black ops operator character. Plus, he drinks a lot of coffee, which I can personally identify with. Marigoji's first brief appearance in the city creates one of the film's most well-known scenes. As Animal tries to load his camera to shoot footage of the creature, Marigoji seemingly steps right on him only to reveal that Animal survived by the sheer luck of being in between the monster's toes. It's a fun shot, which was used extensively in advertising. But if the old Japanese sailor was dying of radiation poisoning, why is Animal okay? Similarly, later gets literally nose-to-nose with Amerigoji, even getting exhaled on by him, and other than being grossed out, suffers no ill effects. This sort of haphazard approach to the script wears me down as a viewer, as the film does not even try to be consistent with the rules it created. The story problems continue as the film moves into the second act. For one thing, the rapid pace which was established early on drops off, and we now start learning about our human characters. 
I don't have a problem with this organization in general. There's a benefit to hitting the ground running and then letting the audience catch our breath. But in this case, I'd already made up my mind about these characters from that first act. It's hard to suddenly start liking these people who have already turned me off. This combines with Emmerich's choices in blocking and direction for the scenes in New York, where every shot seems crowded and cramped. Many shots have lots of extras jammed into every nook and cranny. The city itself seems claustrophobic. I, I think Emmerich's goal was to portray the city in a harsh and negative way, but in the end it just looks cheap. And given the budget of this film being estimated between 130 to $150 million, that's inexcusable. For reference, in 2023 dollars, that would be 240 to 280 million dollars, meaning that adjusted for inflation, this film costs more than Godzilla 2014, Godzilla King of the Monsters, or Godzilla vs. Kong. It takes a good trick to make New York look small, but Emmerich pulls it off. The nonstop rain which covers these scenes, long rumored to be a tool to obscure Amerigoji's CGI, doesn't help either, giving the film an ugly, drab visual palette. More logical problems pile up at this point as well, ranging from Amerigoji steps rocking cars on the ground sometimes but not others, to Apache helicopters not having wing-mounted guns, to a completely nonsense explanation of how cold-bloodedness works, to Los Angeles-class submarines operating in the shallows of the Hudson River, to Amerigoji jumping into said river without causing any waves on the shore, to torpedoes that don't disarm themselves after rotating 180 degrees. You have to just roll with it. But man, that is tough after a while. In fairness, we do get a pretty good joke here, as newsman Cayman steals Audrey report and states the monster's name to be Godzilla, as a mispronunciation of Gojira. Of course, this is then immediately undermined by Audrey's response of, It's Gojira, you moron! Where she also mispronounces Gojira's name, but there you go. By the time you get to the third act with the babies in MSG, the film has become like a Mobius strip, repeating itself over and over until we get to the final chase. The lack of forward momentum really hurts at this point, as this sequence is supposed to be exciting and novel, but ends up playing like the dig at Jurassic Park, which it no doubt began life as, the babies looking like chunky velociraptors and similarly chasing the heroes throughout a building. From that first teaser, this film has had Jurassic Park living rent-free in its brain. By the time Amerigoji returns and chases four people in an indestructible taxi cab through the streets of Manhattan, all pretenses have been abandoned and all credibility is gone. The third act takes absolutely forever, and when it finally ends, even then the tone is uneven. Are we supposed to be sad at Amerigoji's demise or cheer along with the assembled New Yorkers? My reading is that we should be sad and that Amerigoji's a tragic figure and that the cheering is meant to be ironic, but this ends up muddled. The fact that Amerigoji is put down by nothing more than six missiles really misses the mark as well. And to this day, I hear fans bring this moment up to indicate the faults of Amerigoji as a monster and this film as a whole. Despite this vitriol among segments of the fan base, Amerigoji himself, to me, is not the problem with this film. I've often echoed the sentiment of Eric Bischoff that when going up against a competitor, you can either be better, you can be different, or you can be worse. And in this case, Centropolis Studios went with different. His design, directed as we said to be more of an animal rather than a monster, lives up to that principle while still evoking a classic Daikaiji sort of look. He's definitely coming on the heels of the T-Rex from Jurassic Park, given his Saurian stance and speed. But after 1993, that direction's not surprising, nor is it really unwelcome. The massive Jay Leno jaw, as it was described, and long snout further differentiate Amerigoji from his Japanese ancestor. The analogy I heard at the time is, 
What if a Japanese studio made their own Superman? I think that's a fair enough comparison. I will say that his coloring is a little too muted, a little too drab and muddy, especially given the already drab color palette of the film. I will say that his coloring is a little too muted, too drab and muddy, especially given the already drab color palette, making him difficult to see well in some instances. Another polarizing choice of the film is the elimination of atomic breath in favor of two shots of what they call hurricane breath, where our star blasts cars into the air with his breath, where they then catch fire. I always rationalize this in my head as Amaragoji's breath radioactively superheating the air, causing the gasoline in the cars to explode. This is a fan theory, though, with no actual evidence to back it up. This design would finally come fully into its own in Godzilla the series, where the stylized animation really brings out its best qualities, and the new Amerigoji also gains an atomic breath weapon. Many viewers were not sold on the look, and even creatives from the series were vocally critical. Veteran Showa-era suit actor Haru Nakajima said, quote, its face looks like an iguana and its body and limbs look like a frog, while Heisei-era suit actor Kenpachiro Satsuma added, quote, it's not Godzilla, it doesn't have his spirit and walked out of a screening of the film at G-Fest 98. To me, it's best to consider Amerigoji on his own merits, and not to compare him to Godzilla. Much like we have come to accept the MonsterVerse Godzilla, or the animated Godzilla Earth, or Singular Point Godzilla as their own takes, so too should we consider Amerigoji. That, or just accept him as a different monster and move on, since that's essentially what Toho did in Final Wars. How he is brought to life in this film is variable and uneven. The CGI's front and center here and was one of the major selling points of this film. No man in a suit here, with all the pejorative venom you can imagine dripping off of that phrase. Some of the CG's fantastic. Other shots are not ready for primetime. Amerigoji moves really well. He does look more like an animal than a monster like we've seen uh, in the series. And the hero shot of him roaring on the Chrysler building remains the iconic image which it was intended to be 25 years ago. But then... Watching the DVD in my 55-inch TV, the skin textures have not aged well at all. They look glossy and flat. And that may be a case of too large a screen for 480p, but either way, it's more than a little shocking to see. The worst CGI effect in the film is while the soldiers are searching in the tunnels, we see Amerigoji's massive eye blink. This bit of CG looks like something from a first-generation PlayStation game and not a major Hollywood motion picture. There are some practical effects in the mix as well. The lion's share of these are naturally when Amerigoji has to interact with humans, such as when he has the indestructible taxi cab in his mouth. Now, as is the nature of this sort of effects, they hold up better in retrospect than the CGI, although intellectually we can always tell there's still effects due to the subject matter. There's also several shots with a very well-crafted model cityscape, primarily there to get blown up as the U.S. Army fires their weapons wantonly, as cities exploding is a Devil and Emmerich specialty. Far and away, the majority of the physical effects are used with the babies in MSG. And honestly, these are among the best work in the film. The ability to get a performance out of the suit, uh, suit actors, even for a swarm of monsters like the babies, it really does give them a personality and flair which their CGI counterparts lack. Now, in the interest of fairness, I will say that the CG shot of Amerigoji poking at his dead young in the rubble of MSG is a good example of how the CG could be used to create personality and performance. I really do think that despite the huge budget, this film was in many ways penned in by the studio's hard release date, and that that's reflected in the effects. In the end, it all comes back to story with this movie, or lack thereof. While one may argue about the relative merits of different Godzilla films, I think one point which most will agree on is that the ones which stand out in the series are those which use their science fiction backdrop to tell a meaningful or thoughtful story. Whether that is the allegory of the nuclear threat, 
capitalistic greed or the ecological crisis, genetic modification, refusal to remember the past, or rejection of bureaucracy. Here, the closest thing to a developed thematic through-line is that humans are a destructive species. We created Amerigoji. We destroy our city trying to stop him, blow up hundreds of his monster babies, and then shoot him dead with missiles. Even this, though, is not given a denouement, leaving it feeling unfinished and haphazard. It also reminds me of a quote from beloved daikaiju filmmaker Shisuke Kaneko, who stated that, quote, It's interesting that the U.S. version of Godzilla runs about trying to escape missiles. Americans seem unable to accept a creature that cannot be put down by their arms. Strangely enough, the final shot of the hatching egg calls back once again to Jurassic Park. Life finds a way. While TriStar had intended to use this stinger as a springboard into a sequel and ultimately a trilogy, plans for the sequel were abandoned, meaning that this new Amerigoji would instead go on to star in Godzilla the series, a much better-received take on a Western Godzilla. I would go so far as to say the most well-received version until the 2014 film. The monster himself would famously pop up as Zilla in Godzilla Final Wars, where he is the only CG monster of the Exeans army. Zilla is easily defeated by the real Godzilla in Sydney, leading the controller to quip, I knew that tuna-eating monster was useless, taking direct aim at Godzilla 98, much to the delight of many fans in both Japan and the U.S. In conclusion, I was really hoping to be able to enjoy Godzilla 98 more now that both the film and I are 25 years older, and appreciate the film detached from the rigmarole around its production and release. Unfortunately, that turned out not to be the case. The problem which existed for the film two and a half decades ago are still there. The script is inane, the character is unlikable and not always well fleshed out by their performer, and the tempo is frustrating. More distressing to me is that I can see even more oddities and flaws with the film now than I did when I was younger. The overall cheap, approaching tacky appearance in a film which cost $150 million, the overabundance of TV-level actors and fake-looking sets, and the amazing trick of making Manhattan look small. I know this film has its fans, and I understand and embrace that different films work for some people and not others. Ultimately, I must label Godzilla 98 as a disappointment, if only because of the wasted potential evident in the final product. As a brainless popcorn film, it's watchable, and I'm sure that younger viewers who were not there at the time, and thus do not have any memories of the build-up and release, will be kinder to it. Unfortunately, Godzilla 98 remains one film which, on the whole, does not work for me. But hey, your mileage may vary. Please watch it for yourself and make your own decisions. If you would like to own Godzilla 98, you do have a couple of options. Up top is the 4K Blu-ray restoration, which is a two-disc offering with some bonus features and is evidently the only way to see the film as the creators intended, as supposedly earlier masters did not make the effects look as good as possible. I don't own this Blu-ray, so I haven't had a chance to check that out. So if anybody does have it, I'd love to hear about that. So please write in. There is an earlier Blu-ray disc. That one appears to be more difficult to find for Region A. I'm guessing with the 4K one, that one's out of print. The DVD is readily available and plentiful. You can likely find it uh, used if you want to go that route. I know, uh, I think it's like $4.99 on Amazon. I've seen this one used plenty of times. Uh, if you're so inclined, it's also available on VHS. I do own that VHS. It has a very pretty, shiny foil cover, which I appreciate. Amusingly, this film is one of two Godzilla films available on UMD. Sony's mini-disc format, which they use for the PlayStation Portable, the other one being Final Wars. I own that Final Wars UMD, and if I ever come across the Godzilla 98 UMD, you had better believe I will be buying it out of sheer novelty. 
So now I throw it to you, the listeners. What do you think? Were you there for Godzilla 98 when it came out? Were you on board with it? Do you love this film? Are you disappointed? Are you somebody that just absolutely can't tolerate Amerigoji or anything involving it? Please write in. I'd love to hear about it. Some uh, your thoughts on this 25th anniversary. Earth Destruction Directive at Yahoo.com. Absolutely, we'll talk about that here on the show. All right, folks, that's all I've got. We're going to take a quick break, and we're going to come back and wrap up the show here on Earth Destruction Directive. My name is Grundy, born on a Monday. The following recording was taken from an NSA wiretap of a Back to the Men's taping. No names have been changed. Everyone is guilty. Do I need to mine, or am I good where I'm at? Well, now you do. <laughs> if I have to mine, you have to yours. You might want to yours only if you do have it set to automatically because you don't want it to automatically because the thing never works right. Because what will happen is it will be used to you at a particular time, and then if you go out of that it scrambles to uh, a and it doesn't fast enough. So it's better to just set it up. Oh, okay. It, it really doesn't work well. So I checked right. uh, I checked my, uh, mm-hmm. what's it my pre- okay. It definitely built build me for the hotel for all three of us. Join Back to the Bins every week for goodness. Solomon Grundy hate voiceovers. All right, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. And now it's time for my favorite portion of the show, a little bit of listener feedback. If you would like to get in touch with the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective.com. You can also find me on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Just listen to the outro, and we'll give you all the information. So let's get right into it. Our email today comes from my good friend, Professor Alan Middleton, and is entitled Ultra Stuff. And Professor writes, Luke, like George Orwell sort of said, All your episodes are equal, but some are more equal than others. And to me, anything touching Ultraman are your most equal episodes. I appreciate that, Professor. I know know you and Ultraman, you've got a a, a special deal going on. Uh, I did not intend to follow along with your comic coverage, but I did read Trials of Ultraman series on Hoopla over the summer and enjoyed it. Fuji in an appropriately colored cocktail dress? Nuff said. I know you're digging it the most, Professor. And thanks for the update on the range of Ultra content on the Hoopla app. As you know, I also regularly use that service and love it. Great episode. Keep them stomping and take care. Professor Allen, Relatively Geeky Podcast Network and Dorkness Delight. Professor, thank you very much for writing in. Definitely appreciate that. And yeah, you know, I think you mentioned this on either a Comics Reading Journal or Quarterbin Podcast. It's great to have a Hoopla buddy, right? Someone that also uses Hoopla because Hoopla, sometimes things just show up. Right. Or sometimes you're, you're looking for one thing and you find something completely different that might share like some, some segment of the title or a creator or something. And it's, it's great to be able to say, to pass that on to somebody else. So when, when I found out from you that Trials of Ultraman was on Hoopla, I went and saw the other Ultra stuff and passed it on to you. So absolutely. And yeah. Uh, I'm glad that you're appreciating Charles Ultraman. I'm very looking forward to Mysteries of Ultra Seven and, uh, covering that because I've, I have it, but I haven't read it. So I've been holding on to that to read it, to, to prep for the show when we eventually cover it, which should be next year, uh, just based on the way the show is going. So uh, definitely look forward to that. Stay tuned on this episode. Might have something you'd like to hear as well, Professor. So uh, 
So stay tuned. Thank you very much for writing in and uh, and feeding back on the show. Uh, social media, like, shares, retweets, reblogs, all that good stuff for the last episode came from the history of comics on film. Robert Ludwig, the most sane man among us. The Lorax. Two true freaks. Doc Strange, a.k.a. Billy D. Chuck Rodriguez, stomped creator Ross Radke, the aforementioned Professor Allen, and the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network, Bro Rad, Tim Elliott, Chris Mounts, Burma Gaynor, Mr. Lomax, Gene Gene, the Podcasting Machine, Hendrix, Matt Hunsworth, the Irredeemable Shag, Brian Severe, Derek, Derek WC, that incredible fan hole, and last but not least, of course, my brother, Mr. Jason Giaconetti. Thank you all, everyone, for that. As I say all the time, you know, social media really helps get the word out for the show and, um, you know, really helps podcasts out. So even if you just, like I said, hit that like button, hit that retweet, something like that, just to get word out and help your, your favorite podcast, even if it's not a destruction directive, uh, but I would like it to be your destruction directive, just get it out there. These are a labor of love. And I guarantee you the creators of these shows, um, really appreciate, uh, that, that, that helping just spread it far and wide. Cause I know I do. Uh, at this time, I'd also like to take a moment to remind everyone, of course, that Earth Destruction Directive is for everyone. If you would like to be uh, a part of the Daikaiju scene, if you're just learning to be, uh, learning about Daikaiju, if you're just getting into it, maybe you saw that teaser for uh, Godzilla X-Kong and you were just intrigued and you wanted to find out more about uh, this whole genre of giant monsters, you are welcome to interact with this show at whatever level you feel comfortable. If that means just listening, if that means sending email, going on the Discord, any of that, you know, all are welcome at Earth Destruction Directive. That is the way I run this show, and that's the way I hope to always run this show. Speaking of running the show, we always have to be worried about the next episode. So what is the next episode? Well, we're going to, I, I, I tease this, I tease this, I said, Professor, stay tuned. We're going to be taking a look at the next two episodes of the original Ultraman, episodes 34 and 35, featuring the monsters Skydon and Seabaz. So, very excited. We are really getting into the final stretch here of episodes. I mean, it's only 39 episodes, so this is 34 and 35, so we're right up there near the end here. Uh, the show's really been hitting its stride lately. Very excited to rewatch these episodes and, uh, and uh, bring my, uh, you know, get my feelings and thoughts on. It's been a few years since I've seen these two in particular, so should be a lot of fun. Of course, any news that comes up about Godzilla X-Kong, about Gamera Rebirth, about new Ultraman stuff, uh, either from Subaraya or releases from Mill Creek, any of that stuff that comes up, we'll of course give you your updates in the news, and uh, we'll have more listener feedback and all that as well. All right, that's all I've got, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to our episode here, uh, celebrating the 25th anniversary of Godzilla 98, a, a film that you know, it's its own film, and love it or hate it, it's out there, and it's uh, it 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 was a thing 25 years ago, folks. That's that's uh, that's the only. It's good, bad, or otherwise. That's what it was. And I hope everybody comes back next time. We're going to take a look at our two episodes of Ultraman. Thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening. Remember, of course, you can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter, on YouTube. Just search for Earth Destruction Directive. You can also find us on Discord. I have been trying to put that link in the. Uh, in the show notes. So go talk to us on the Discord, on the Two True Freaks Discord server, on the Earth Destruction Directive channel. I hope everybody enjoyed this episode. Please come back next time. And until then, keep them stomping. This has been Earth Destruction Directive, a Daikaiju podcast, produced and created by me, Luke Giaconetti, as part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, available at twotruefreaks.com. 
This is a fan work celebrating the history and culture of Japanese giant monsters. All movies, TV shows, comic books, characters, and other intellectual property is copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. If you would like to send an email to the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. I try to respond to all emails, and if you send in some comments, I will read them on the show. All episodes of Earth Destruction Directive can be found at 2TrueFreaks.com. You can also find the show on your favorite podcatcher. Just search for Earth Destruction Directive. You can even leave a review on your podcatcher of choice if you'd like. You can find me on Facebook. Just search for first name Luke, last name EDD. You can also get in touch with me on Twitter. Just search for the handle at LJacone. That's L-J-A-C-O-N-E. The theme song for this podcast is Future Gladiator by Kevin McLeod, downloaded from Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0 license. Thanks for listening, and be sure to come back next time for more city-stomping fun here on Earth Destruction Directive. Tune in next time to hear the crusty old podcaster from Oklahoma say, There's a WTF (laughs) moment if I ever saw one.